This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Kaylee Byers. She's the Deputy Director of the British Columbia Node of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative and a University Research Associate at Simon Fraser University. We'll be discussing the effects of calling on Bartonella bacteria in urban rats in Canada. Welcome, Dr. Byers. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with a very basic question. What is Bartonella? Bartonella are bacteria, and there are several species which can cause disease in people, which is one of the reasons that we are concerned about them. So when thinking about Bartonella, the most well-known is maybe the species that causes cat scratch disease. So listeners may have heard of that before. And they're typically spread among animals and to people by vectors like fleas and lice. Are there different species of it? Yeah, so I think one estimate actually suggested that there are about 20 known species of Bartonella. It's always so interesting when there's so many different species, then you have to kind of track them differently, right? I think so, yeah. And I mean, again, that I like to sort of narrow in on the part there that's 20 known species, right? There's also probably many more that we haven't yet discovered and which we may one day discover through things like DNA sequencing technologies. What kinds of rats are urban Norway rats? They kind of are just like their name. There are city rats. They're also called brown rats or sewer rats, but they're found in cities all over the world. And are they more likely to be disease carriers than any of the other many, many kinds of rats? Yeah, exactly. There are many different species of rats. And I should have said Norway rats fall within the the genus Rattus. You know, this is a really great question, and I think it's important that we think about this question sort of in terms of what diseases we care about. So for this question, I assume that we're most interested in zoonotic diseases or those diseases that are transmissible or can be shared between animals and people. So when thinking about whether or not they're more likely to be disease carriers, I like to think of it sort of along two arms of the question. So the first is, do they have the capacity to carry disease? Can they get infected? And the second is, you know, how likely are they to actually come into contact with those diseases that we care about? And so in terms of capacity, you know, it's really not clear to me that Norway rats are any more capable of being infected with pathogens. I'm not aware of any comparative studies that look at Norway rats and black rats versus other species of rats. Those studies may exist, and perhaps your listeners will write in with some really interesting ones. But I'm not aware of any evidence that they're more likely to be infected or to be able to carry these disease-causing pathogens. But regarding the second arm around likelihood, Norway and black rats are actually quite interesting and exceptional in that they live in such close association with people that there are many opportunities for them to interact with those diseases that we carry and for us to come into contact with the ones that they do. They're in our backyards, they're in our alleys, they're in our sewers, and sometimes they're even in our homes. And so from that perspective, I would say that they're more likely to acquire those human-associated or people-associated pathogens acting like a bit of a pathogen sponge. They can move through the environment and their close contact with us provides more opportunities for us to sort of acquire those pathogens from them. And are these Norway urban rats the most common type of urban rat? Brown rats? Seems like that's what you hear of mostly. 
Definitely. In cities, Norway rats are the most common, but it really depends on where you are. So black rats or ratus ratus, through their Latin name, are also actually really widely distributed, but they have a bit of a different ecology. Those Norway or brown rats tend to be on the ground, or like I called them earlier, sewer rats. Black rats tend to be more likely to be a little bit up high, or they're also called roof rats, where you might see them in trees. So because Norway rats tend to be a bit more aggressive, they can also push those roof rats or black rats sort of out of their range. And so I think that's one of the reasons we tend to see them more often. But depending on where you are, you might be more likely to come into contact with those ratus ratus versus ratus norvegicus rats. This is probably a horrifying question, but is there an estimate of how many rats there are in urban areas of Canada? I like that you open that with horrifying. This is a really great question, and I get asked it a lot. And short and sweet, it is no. We don't have an estimate of how many rats there are in urban areas in Canada. And that's just because we aren't tracking them. So in order to estimate the number of rats in an area, we actually need established surveillance systems that can track rat populations across space and over time. A lot of the information we get right now is much more anecdotal, right? We might get calls into pest control companies, which can tell us whether or not we're seeing an increase in rat calls or where they are, but whether or not people call in to a pest control company or to a city to report rats is going to vary a lot. And it's not really a reliable source uh, to tell us how many rats there are in an area. And so we don't know, but this is an area of research that I think we need. I think we need these systems to be able to track rat populations so we can get some estimates, some abundance estimates, and have an idea of not just how many there are, but where they are and how that's changing with time, especially in response to things like climate change. I have got to say that I find that incredibly surprising. Rats have been a vector pretty much so we know of since the dawn of time. So there hasn't been surveillance systems set up yet. So we have a varying types, right? But the actual on the ground counting of rats is not something we really have. And it's not something we have at a city level. You might have something maybe on a neighborhood level. It's a little bit easier, but there's a few really good reasons. I mean, Rats, as someone who's trapped over 700 rats themselves, I can tell you they're quite difficult to trap. They're quite elusive. So just even being in the spaces that they are to get a good estimate is really difficult. So you can use proxies, right? You can look for gnaw marks. You can look for rat holes. You can look for sebum marks, so kind of evidence of where rats have been. But again, that won't give you a, a full estimate of numbers. But I think there's a, a huge advancement now in uh, tracking technologies for rats and camera traps and stuff. So I think we have more capacity to do that work now than we did before. Okay, so back to the disease. Is there a season for Bartonella and rats? So when it comes down to seasonality, we're actually looking at something more complex than just some variables like temperature. We're thinking about how the environment and changes in season impact not just the rat and its survival, but also the things that vector the Bartonella, like the fleas that live on the rats and their survival. So it's a complex web really of intersections that will vary across the year and vary by years. But at least in Vancouver, we've seen that Bartonella is more common in rats in the fall. And that could be because the weather has been warm and humid enough to promote flea populations to survive. So at least in our area, we can say that the risk for maybe Bartonella infection 
So rats would be greater in the fall, but that could change year to year depending on all these various seasonal variables. How is the pathogen spread from rats to people? Fleas, bites, kisses from pets? (laughs) Adorable kisses from pets. For the Bartonella species associated with rats, it's primarily transmitted by fleas. But it's actually not the way you might think. So the flea bites the rat, and as it's feeding, it actually defecates. And the bacteria is actually in the feces of the flea. So how does that bacteria get into the animal? Well, uh, it can enter the wound where the flea has bitten the rat, or it can maybe get into another open wound that you happen to have. So you can imagine you get bitten by a flea. It's itchy. You scratch it. You introduce some of that flea feces into the wound. I know that sounds particularly delightful, but that's how you can get it. How is Bartonella manifested in people? What kind of symptoms do people get from it? Several of the diseases that are acquired by people, the the symptoms are actually generally pretty nonspecific. And what I mean by that is that there aren't any clear symptoms really that would make you think, oh, that's Bartonella, right? That's a clear sign that you've got Bartonella. It actually is much more nonspecific. So it can present with things like fatigue, fever, muscle, and joint aches. So it's sort of a combination of all these symptoms that could appear to be something else as well. So sort of flu-like symptoms, really. So it doesn't lead to fatal illnesses or organ failure or meningitis or the various other horrifying things so many of the diseases lead to? That's a really good question. And I'm not as familiar with really the morbidity and mortality in people that is associated with Bartonella. I mean, as a bacterial pathogen, I believe you can generally treat it with antibiotics, but what the consequences are if you have a Bartonella infection and haven't treated it, I'm not entirely sure. When we're thinking about diseases associated with rats that do have significant morbidity and mortality for people, one of the ones that's actually quite considerable is Leptospira, which is a different bacterial pathogen transmitted in rat urine. And for that, many people get sick worldwide and can have some pretty significant consequences in terms of mortality and morbidity. And plague, of course. Yeah, I mean, we often do associate plague with rats, and I I do believe we still have some outbreaks today. The the science around that is a really interesting area and is often sort of changing as how much of previous outbreaks were rat-associated. Again, it's really the fleas there that are doing some of the damage (laughs) that are jumping from the rat to the people, and the rats don't do well with the plague either. But there's some research in the last decade that was looking at, like, human-associated lice, and I'm not entirely sure where we've settled on that and how much of the past outbreaks were actually related to human ectoparasites. Oh, that's interesting. I just want to say here, I am inordinately fond of rats. I have had pet rats and I just find them delightful. They are. And you can train them, right? They're really interesting pets. And even just the work that I've done where we were trapping rats, so we were trapping and releasing rats, you can really see all their different personalities, which I found really interesting. You can really tell when you're working with all the different animals. Yeah, I I have a fondness for them too. Have you had any pet rats? I haven't, but I've had other other pet rodents, but I have never had pet rats. Your study was actually involved some culling of the rats to stop the spread of the diseases, but apparently there was some concern that the process would backfire. There seem to be some pretty significant aspects to this. Tell us what happened or what your concerns were about the culling. When we're 
thinking of managing rats, the approach that we tend to take is sort of this seek and destroy approach. And that's partly because the idea that we can catch the animal, we can kill the animal, somehow we can remove those diseases that are associated with them, right? And especially these zoonotic diseases that can be transmitted between the animal and the person. Um, But several studies have actually shown that this approach can have some unintended consequences that can alter normal disease transmission patterns in really unanticipated ways. And that, again, is because we're actually operating in a really complex system. So, for example, in a previous study that we did in the same rat population with Leptospira interrogans, which I mentioned earlier, we looked at whether or not culling rats, as you would through sort of standard pest control practices, impacted leptospira. So were rats more likely to carry leptospira before or after we had done this culling campaign? And uh, we actually published the findings of that study in this journal as well in emerging infectious diseases. And what we found is that culling the rats actually increased the number of rats or the prevalence of leptospira among the remaining rats in the areas where the culling had occurred. So only in the blocks where we had removed rats did we see that more rats were actually carrying leptospira after the culling. And so it seemed actually to have the opposite effect on what you would think. We actually saw an increase in disease among rats uh, when that sort of pest control had happened. So there was some precedence here for why we expected we might see some kind of impact and maybe in a way we didn't expect. Why did you do this study and what were you looking for? Well, because we'd already done this previous study on leptospira, we were really interested in looking at this impact on another pathogen carried by rats, but that has a very different ecology. So I was just telling you about leptospira, and in that case, the bacteria are transmitted in the urine of rats. So the urine goes splashing into city streets. They can get it from close contact. The bacteria might get in the wounds, and so they can get it that way. But as we discussed, Bartonella is transmitted by rat fleas. So you're dealing with a whole different ecology, and you've got not just the ecology of the rats, but the ecology of the fleas, the vectors, which results in a very unique sort of transmission system that requires close contact among the rats for the fleas to be spread or maybe the rats sharing nests and that's where many of the fleas are. So we were really curious, would we see the same thing? Would we see that culling increased the number of rats carrying Bartonella? And so that's why we did this study. You mentioned releasing some of the rats, which is different than culling. So you want to tell us how you conducted the study? What exactly went on here? So it was really an urban experimental design. What we did was identify a number of city blocks in this downtown area of Vancouver, Canada, where we were going to trap rats. So in total, we had 36 individual city blocks, and those were divided into groups of three. So we effectively had 12 study sites, and each of those had three blocks. And then we designated seven of those sites as control sites where we didn't do any culling and five of those as the intervention sites where we did do some culling, where we trapped and removed rats. And so in all of those blocks, we trapped rats and we took them back to our mobile laboratory van. We put them to sleep where we took samples like blood and urine and feces to test for pathogens and an ear punch for genetic information. And we collected the fleas from the rats as well to test them for Bartonella. And we gave each rat a unique ear tag identifier so we can identify them again. Because as you mentioned, we were actually trapping and releasing rats for most of the study. So we would trap rats and release them in all of these blocks for two weeks. 
and then we would try to catch them again, essentially. So for the first two weeks, we trapped and released in all those blocks. And then the next two weeks in the intervention blocks, we trapped and humanely euthanized rats in those central blocks to enact a culling intervention. And we did that in the center of the three blocks in an intervention site. And then we trapped and released rats in all the other blocks during that time. So we continued to trap rats, take samples, and put them back exactly where we had caught them from. So in the control sites, as I mentioned, that's what we did. And then we came back to all the sites about three to six weeks later, and we trapped and sampled and released those rats again. And so the aims were really to see whether the number of rats and rat fleas carrying Bartonella had changed from before the culling intervention and afterwards, and whether that changed, whether or not you were in a control block or you were in an intervention block. Well, that's how it worked with the rats. What about people? What did you find in people? Did the culling actually improve things for people getting the disease? So we actually didn't look at people. So what we found in the rats, which was quite surprising, we found that throughout the study, the number of rats with Bartonella increased in the second half of trapping in all the blocks, except in the ones where we did the culling, the intervention. And so it actually seemed uh, to suggest that in this case, removing rats reduced Bartonella carried by rats, which is sort of the opposite of what we saw with Leptospira. In terms of improving things for people, it's difficult to know. There has been some previous work in this area that suggested that people do come into contact with Bartonella. It's hard to know whether or not that's acquired through rats or not, but a lower number of rats carrying Bartonella in an area could be beneficial for people. There's just fewer rats with that disease for you to come into contact with. But I would say there's so many other things that go into this, right? It's beyond just, is the disease present? It's also, are people coming into contact with rats? How frequently, how closely? There's just, again, just such a dynamic system. You've mentioned fleas many times here because they're actually the real culprit. What about the fleas? If culling impacted the rat population, then the fleas just jumped to the remaining rats, right? You know, we actually didn't find that there was any impact of the culling on the number of fleas we collected per rat. Rats were just as flea infested before as they were after. We also didn't find any significant difference in the number of fleas that were carrying Bartonella before versus after. So where we saw that difference for rats, we didn't see that difference for fleas. And that could be because generally most fleas actually don't live on the rat. So Many fleas, especially earlier in that developmental stage, are actually in the nest. And so removing a few rats and the fleas that happen to be on them probably didn't significantly impact the flea population at all. So it'd actually be really interesting to do a similar study that actually looked at the impacts of removing the fleas from rat burrows on Bartonella prevalence, for example, to actually go in and scrape those fleas out of the nest. And you know what? The rats would probably uh, not be too upset with that either. Ultimately, then, what do you think about the practice of calling to prevent disease? Is there any point to it from a disease standpoint? This is such a good question. And I think ultimately, it's just a bit misguided to assume that a really simple response to a complex problem will have a straightforward and universally beneficial effect. So when we're dealing with these complex systems that involve animals like rats, vectors like fleas and people... The environment as well, and as we talked about earlier, seasonality, altering one part in that system has implications that are very difficult to anticipate. And so in this case, we saw that removing rats might be beneficial, right? We, we might reduce Bartonella prevalence. 
But in another study with the exact same population of rats, we found that it could actually increase risks for leptospira. And so I think what these comparisons show us is that we really need to be thinking about rat management and especially rat disease management differently beyond just this seek destroy method. How can we address disease risks that account for that complexity? I think that means looking sort of beyond just the culling, the removing wildlife, to ways that actually create healthier living environments for all of us, people and wildlife in the cities, and that reduce negative contacts between animals and people, sort of that human-wildlife conflict. For example, if we are most at risk of coming into contact with rats and their diseases in our homes, what kinds of policies and programs can we implement at the city level to address those risks? Could we prioritize approaches that ensure people have clean living environments free from rats or that hold landlords accountable for rat infestations in a building? that ensure that buildings have strong infrastructures that reduce rat infestations, right? Uh, Ultimately keeping rats out of the building in the first place. None of those measures deal with the rats themselves. They recognize where rats and people are most likely to interact and address that interface. And I think that to me is, is a much more exciting and sustainable, mind you, it has to be an iterative approach to rats than just sort of this really narrow focused approach that we tend to have, which is the seek and destroy approach. Along that same theme, I've been reading these articles about birth control for rats, which seems brilliant to me. So I'd like your opinion on that, as well as if you're going to feed them some kind of birth control, couldn't there be like a multi-purpose vaccine sort of in there where you give them birth control as well as a rabies vaccine, like we do with raccoons, as well as leptospirosis vaccine? I believe there is one, right? What do you think about all that? So this is a really interesting question. So maybe let's start on the vaccine side. To my knowledge, rats have not been associated with rabies at all, though we tend to think of them as potentially carrying rabies. So to my knowledge, they don't. Um, And I'm not aware of any other vaccines that could be right now targeted to rats that would reduce things, say, like leptospira. Although I think maybe the vaccine you're talking about might be in dogs. But certainly, I mean, with those what you're talking about with like rabies and raccoons, those have been uh, really exciting campaigns and I think have made some significant difference for those types of diseases. So in areas where we had large leptospirosis outbreaks, could we formulate something that would reduce leptospirosis in rats? That, that is a very exciting area of research and something I know nothing about, but <laughs> would be excited to learn more about. In terms of rat birth control, again, I think this is an interesting area. It's something that's gotten a lot of attention. I think some of the issues with something like a birth control approach are sort of feasibility is part of it. And there's also sort of the aspect of uptake. So on the feasibility front, how often do rats need to eat the bait in order to reduce their numbers? So reducing numbers generally through something like birth control is interesting because really what you want to do is reduce sort of the the number of rats there are, but ultimately you also kind of want to reduce the carrying capacity of an area. So you want to reduce the number of rats that can survive in an area. We typically do that through like environmental control. You have better waste management. You have less areas for them to burrow. So in this case, you're just looking to reduce the total number of, of rats that they can have. So you've got that part. So if they need to eat it every single day and there is a lot of other food in the environment, how much of an effect is that really going to have? Will it have significant decrease in rat populations that we might like to see? 
I haven't seen any data to suggest out in the city that that would have much of an effect because there's so much other food available to them. The other issue is if you go in and you say, say you're a pest control manager and you say to a client, I'd like to use this birth control to reduce rats, someone might say, oh, that seems like a more humane approach. I'd prefer that. But then it actually will take more time, right, than just going in and trapping and culling rats. So how likely are people to actually engage with it? And that's something else that I I don't think we have a really good understanding of. So I would say, you know, this rat birth control could be another aspect to our control, although I would I would also be hesitant a little bit about long-term effects on other wildlife. We certainly see that with poison baits, right? It gets into non-target wildlife and that's a significant problem. Doubt it would ever be the only approach. And I think, again, we need to really be thinking about environmental management and we need to be thinking about these interface areas to reduce the risks associated with rats. Do you think what you found is particular to Canada or can we extrapolate to other countries? I'm thinking particularly the U.S. since we have this border that goes a long way. I certainly think that the overarching finding of this work that culling animals can have unpredictable impacts on disease dynamics in wildlife and their vectors, I think that can be applied to other settings for sure. But again, because each of these systems is really nuanced, each environment will influence these systems differently. And that's not just the physical environment like green space and standing water and buildings, but also the social environment. So how do people interact with wildlife in their environment? How do management approaches of a city differ? All of these things will come together to mean that we, what we found about Bartonella in Vancouver, and again, in a specific area of Vancouver, is not a universal truth. But I think this broader picture about how human actions can have unanticipated impacts on wildlife disease and disease spread will be true across numerous contexts. Were there surprises? You mentioned the difference between leptospirosis and Bartonella. Was there anything else or was that the main one? I'm not sure even that we were particularly surprised by the findings. It it was certainly interesting that we found that the same approach had different impacts on the disease ecology of rats for these two different pathogens. But I think that knowing what we do about how dynamic all of these disease systems are, that it actually was maybe a bit expected or it wasn't such a surprise when we found something different. I think maybe a good motto when you're dealing with these kind of systems is, expect the unexpected, really. What were the challenges in gathering up these rats? As we've said, rats are very intelligent and crafty little guys. Yeah, rats can be quite difficult to catch. They're very wary of new things in the environment, which probably a good idea. So that makes it really hard, actually, uh, to get them into your traps in the first place. That's a really significant challenge when it comes to doing this kind of rat work. And I also think it's one of the reasons we don't have more urban rat research. So to manage that specific challenge, one of the things that we do is called pre-baiting. And that's where you actually put bait in traps and keep the traps open for a, a week or so before you actually start trapping to get them acclimatized to traps. You kind of get them used to it being there. The traps get a little bit dirtier while they're sitting outside. And then even once you get them into a trap, they can be really uh, difficult to wrangle. The first rat we ever trapped immediately escaped into our rat van. (laughs) So uh, there there are a few levels that make it difficult to deal with rats. I don't know if you ever read it, but a book called Rats, written by... uh... Sullivan, was it, I think? Yeah, that sounds maybe right. But anyway, there's only one book, I think, called Rats that's nonfiction. Absolutely fascinating and goes a lot 
talks a lot about how intelligent they are and how hard it is to do anything with them because they just outsmart you every step of the way. Yeah, I think I did read that. I think the the person who used to deliver my mail actually lent me a copy for a bit and I found it really interesting. And actually, if I can, I'd love to plug just momentarily that the story of the the rat that got lost in the rat van is actually a chapter in a children's book that a colleague of mine wrote, Dr. Silita Guy. And that book is for kids about urban ecology. It's called Chasing Bats and Tracking Rats, Urban Wildlife and ecology and how we share our cities. So that's that's a little book chapter where folks could learn more about Harold the Rat and other urban wildlife stories. Oh, that's wonderful. I am going to find that immediately. Are there further studies you want to do to better understand the relationship between animal disease and people? I'm actually really interested in people's relationship to wildlife generally and um, how our perceptions of wildlife and their diseases impact mental health in people. So this is some work that I did as part of my PhD with rats and actually looking at the experiences of people living with rats and, and how that impacted them day to day. And I think this kind of information is really important because it helps us understand how wildlife impact people differently across cities and it can help us to build sort of better healthier human-wildlife relationships. And so that's actually an area of research that I'm, I'm really interested in. What would you say is the most important aspect of your study, public health-wise, and what future researchers need to pay attention to? I think the most important aspect of this study is really taking a broader view beyond the particular findings of this one project. And that's just to recognize how complex these One Health issues are. Are. And, and when I say One Health, I'm talking about a perspective that recognizes how interconnected the health of animals, people, and the environments are. So we really need to be thinking broadly about how all of these components of these systems intersect and recognize the incredible value of bringing together diverse perspectives in, in trying to address those issues. Folks working, in my case, in pest control and ecology and vector biology, right? There's so much information there that needs to be integrated in order to understand these systems better and to promote wildlife or human and wildlife health generally. Well, you mentioned your job. So tell us more about that and what exactly do you do? I have a few hats that I wear. I'm the deputy director of the British Columbia Node of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative, And the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative is a national collective of wildlife health experts and enthusiasts working to support healthy wildlife populations in Canada. And so in that role, I work on a a number of health programs from the ones I spoke about today to studies on sarcocystis in bears to projects that use metagenomics to study bat diets and what they're eating In that case, we actually collect bat guano and do genomic sequencing to look at what species of insects are there and whether there are any known agricultural pests. So that's sort of one area of work that I'm engaged in. I'm also a university research associate at Simon Fraser University, where I work on knowledge translation and health communications research to identify ways to strengthen health communication sort of processes and then try to better understand how we share information and how we engage with that information and how to engage communities in it. And those are sort of the two scopes of research that I work in. And as you said, you just recently got your PhD and tell us what your thesis topic was and going back, why did you choose it? 
I did. I completed my PhD two years ago, and actually my graduation is finally coming up because I think it was in one of the sort of first rounds of, of pandemic graduations. So my PhD was in the Department of Interdisciplinary Studies at the University of British Columbia, and that's where I worked on urban rats in Vancouver. And this study was really one part of that thesis. It, it didn't end up in the thesis, but I looked specifically at how rat ecology and human interactions like this sort of culling study can impact pathogen spread. I also looked at rat movement patterns. So that's that aspect of rat ecology and how that aligns with what we see in diseases. One interesting thing we found is that diseases carried by rats tend to be clustered. So one city block might have many rats carrying a disease causing bacteria and the next one might be pathogen free. And so why is that? And and it could be um, in part because rats don't move all that far. They don't move between blocks. So that was really a lot of the work I did. And then also some of this mental health piece that I mentioned earlier. So I feel really lucky to have been able to work across disciplines in epidemiology, social science, veterinary science, genomics, all these areas to really understand these critters better. It's really been incredible. I think even though they live in such close association with us, we're still learning so much more about them all the time. And that's really exciting to me. And you also do a couple of podcasts of your own, I believe. What are they about (laughs) and why them? I do do a couple podcasts. The first one I started was called Nerdin' About. It actually was a spinoff of an event that I used to run in Vancouver or or co-ran with a colleague called Nerd Night. And that event was a science communication event where people would get together and learn about science over a drink in a bar. And then with the pandemic, we had to transition into something different. So we started a podcast and that was a lot of fun. And I learned a lot about podcasting and how maybe I'm not, um, my skills don't lie in podcast editing. So to the person editing this, we appreciate you. (laughs) And the other podcast that I started on this year with the folks of Genome British Columbia is Nice Genes. And that's been a lot of fun. So I host Nice Genes. Nice Genes is a podcast all about genomics and how genomics intersects with our lives, from research on environmental DNA to understanding how genomics can inform healthcare, and then we call that pharmacogenomics, to exploring how DNA informs our identities through these take-home tests like 23andMe. So yeah, that has been a a lot of fun, um, and I really appreciate being in the host space for Nice Genes. So we just wrapped up season one, and we're starting on season two now, and I'm really excited about it. Nice. Well, I hope some of our listeners here at EID will listen to yours. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Byers. This has been a delight. Thank you again for having me on. It's always my distinct pleasure to chat about rats. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the August 2022 article, Calling of Urban Norway Rats and Carriage of Bartonella Species Bacteria, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.